0: Speed up with podcast. Speed up. Rationally speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information,
1: please visit us at nycskeptics.org.
0: Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I'm your host, Massimo Pilducci, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Galef. Julia, what are we going to talk about today?
2: Massimo, today we are lucky enough to have a special guest with us in studio. Lou Maranoff is professor and chair of philosophy at the City College of New York. He is the founding president of the American Philosophical Practitioners Association and also editor of their scholarly journal, Philosophical Practice. Lou has authored two international bestsellers, Plato, Not Prozac, and Therapy for the Sane, both of which apply philosophy, Asian and Western schools alike, to the resolution of everyday problems. Uh, Most recently, he's published The Middle Way, which applies virtue ethics of Aristotle, Buddha, and Confucius to moderating extremes of many kinds. And in 2004, the New York Times Weekend Magazine called him, quote, the world's most successful marketer of philosophical counseling. (laughs) Lou, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you.
1: Thank you very much, Julia and Massimo. It's great to be here.
0: And of course, we should disclose that actually Lou and I are colleagues at uh, CUNY. I mean, he's at City College and I'm at Lehman College. So so the entire show is fixed, in other words. It's pretty much fixed, (laughs) yes. (laughs) Okay, Lou, so I, I actually read a number of years ago now the Plato Not Prozac, and I still remember very clearly... Uh, I hope I remember very clearly, that right in the introduction, you actually say, well, it's not really Plato and no Prozac. It's something more on the lines. If you need Prozac, take it, but then you still need Plato. Is that Do I remember correctly?
1: You, your memory is working very well, Massimo. And I, I think that, you know, Plato, not Prozac is very uh, uh, provocative. It's, it should be for a book title. And people sure, love sure. the title. It worked out really right. well in many languages. It translates extremely well, you know, mas platoni, menos prozac in Spanish. <laughs> no, seriously, it, it yeah. works. It's one of these nice, catchy things. But the truth is, of course, more nuanced than that. It's not black and white. The world is not black and white. And so there are people who can benefit probably from both on a given day. But what we're emphasizing as philosophic practitioners is the neglected dimension of the inner human capacities, our resources, our will, our belief, our intentionality, these things which have been severely neglected by the medicalization of the human being. And that's what we are obviously reemphasizing in our work.
0: Now, in some sense, isn't that going back to the very beginning of philosophy, or at least of, of uh, ancient Greek philosophy, where, where people can act, were actually talking philosophy meant not, not, not speculation about highly esoteric and very technical things, but it meant actually trying to figure out how to live your life. It meant both.
1: Uh, I think Aristotle recognized love of wisdom, which could become extremely speculative and, and abstract, but also recognized phronesis which is practical wisdom, which we need for everyday life. And not only Hellenic civilization, but also the Taoists of ancient China and the Buddhists were were doing, in my view, exactly the same thing. They were applying philosophy to life as a guide to the art of living.
2: So what would be an example of the kind of problem that someone might come to a philosophical counselor with?
1: But the, you know, my, my books are full, uh, chock full of case studies. Would you want a couple of thumbnail uh, cases? Yeah, please I just can, give me some favorites. And I'll give you, you know, I'll give you some examples using both Western and Eastern, if you like. Great. Uh, so you can get okay. Here's here's a, a guy who uh, there's a let's say uh, he was a lawyer, uh, changing his profession to protect his identity, and he wanted his problem was that he wanted to take his son to Disney World. And what, what is the problem here he, he himself had you know severe issues with spending a lot of money and overindulging his children and so forth but right. he belonged to a peer group in which it was pretty much expected that they could go to Orlando and his son was actually encountering peer pressure you know from his friends like why haven't you been to Disney World you know for right. a 10 year old this could be an issue right? right but this guy was struggling and he was really looking for a, a reasonable justification to do it yes mm-hmm. okay. and he'd also grown up if you want a psychological you know take on the guy's history he'd grown up in a family which had been you know immersed in austerity and which had taught him that poverty was a virtue so he was struggling with a very old sure. you know kind of piece of baggage so Aristotle helped him a lot as I, as I spoke to him he seemed very rational and he, he seemed you know quite amenable to, to some kind of western idea so I suggested to him that we could talk about the golden mean where virtue lies you know for Aristotle uh, in the middle the golden mean is a, is a balance between the excess uh, on the one hand a vice of excess and on the other hand a vice you know, of of deficiency, and obviously, if you spoil your children, you do everything for them and give them everything. Then, then that becomes a vice uh-huh. in Aristotelian terms. If you do nothing for them and totally deprive them, that's another kind of vice in Aristotelian terms. The middle way, you know, the golden mean is to find something reasonable to do for them, and then, moreover, to compensate for his other problem, uh, which is, you know, what am I going to do? I feel so guilty about spending so much money on my kids. Well, you know, there are a lot of needy children in the world, and a man in his position could afford to give an equal amount of charity. He could afford both to take his child to Disney World and to be a philanthropist and spend an equal amount of money benefiting those who are in more dire need. And that's what he did. Uh-huh. And this required one session. Oh, that was that was pretty effective then.
0: Well, a, it can a, be on a, a good right.
1: day, you know. Like like <laughs> like like any scientific experiment. We, we when scientists say, "Oh, you know, typical data," they usually mean the best experiment. But we have right. the capacity to resolve some issues in one session. I prefer short term work myself. Although sometimes, of course, it's going to take a few months. Yes.
2: It- it probably is a little bit easier to re- resolve issues when the patient is the, the sort who's who's sort of looking for a justification for what they already want to do or want to conclude.
1: Well, precisely, and and let me jump in there. Then we're obviously not going to give somebody a justification to do something violent or harmful or illegal oh, sure, or you, sure, know, sure. you know. I mean, obviously, yeah. we're we're operating within a framework of civil law and moral you know moral codes. But well, so. I would
0: disagree. Actually, I don't think that was necessarily a case of. of, of providing somebody with a justification for something that he wanted to do already yes he did' end up bringing the kid to uh, you know Disney world but he also ended up doing other things in the meantime like providing for for instance giving to charity which was probably not in the original plan
1: not at all right but it was so, a win-win-win situation right, exactly. you see we can turn this liability in his case which is a kind of paralysis the guy can't you know do anything because he doesn't have a rationale but we're giving him a very good idea and because I happen to connect him with if you like the the, the most appropriate philosopher for that time and place in his life being a rational guy I said gee this was really helpful what more could I get from Aristotle so then I was able to refer him to a few chapters in the Michael McKeon Ethics he was able to read more deeply and enrich his experience of Aristotle's conception of virtue but this is an educational process and this is one of the things that distinguishes us from psychotherapeutic and psychoanalytic uh, models we'll
0: get to that in a minute um, but I wanted to give you you mentioned a minute ago that of course this, this has worked because that particular person and, uh, was sort of responsive to that sort of rational Aristotelian approach. Uh, I assume there are other examples of, of individuals that actually respond to a different kind of philosophers. As-
1: Absolutely, and I'll give you a quick If, if you like a quick sketch, sure. a woman, a very successful professional woman. I must say we don't always work with successful professionals. We I work with artists, you know, with with, with all kinds with teachers, with 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 ordinary you know with laypersons of all sorts and CEOs too. But here was a woman who had a very successful career in the financial sector, but was unfulfilled and unhappy in it and she always wanted to go to medical school. This was in the back of her mind for many years, and now she was approaching an age where she really had to be decisive and either do it or not do it. She also wanted a family, and and she wasn't meeting the right kind of people in her financial sector. She was extremely rational, but her own exercise of reason was, was not sufficient to cut this Gordian knot of her dilemma. So I suggested to her, after we had a couple of sessions, and I said, listen, would you like to try something a little bit different to help to guide you? She said, sure. So we went to the I Ching. I use, I use Taoist traditional Taoist wisdom with her. The I Ching functions, and I'm talking only about the Wilhelm Baines, you know, the Princeton University Press edition mm-hmm. of the I Ching. There are a million translations out there. Some of them look uh, unrecognizable you know, comparatively because they're so, so vastly different in their substance. But the Wilhelm Baines is really a brilliant translation. And it functions like a philosophical Rorschach test. Basically, it's a kind of mirror in which it, the book is not telling you something. It's revealing to you the inner workings of your mind and heart. And so right. something in the text will jump out and be meaningful. And sure enough to her, the, the, you know, the hexagram she obtained had in it some chunk of text which spoke directly to her at a very deep level. And she said it was like an illumination. She said, now I know what I want to do. And she decided to go to medical school. And she did. She, she was successful. I mean, she'd already been accepted, but she had to decide. You know, the issue was right. within three weeks, do I take this plunge, you know, drop my income down to, you know, student levels and, and, and you know, renounce, you know, what I have? And then do, follow my bliss, what I thought was my bliss. And I asked her a very important question. You know, do you really? Did you just want to prove that you could get into medical school? Was that the whole thing driving this, or do you really have a calling to be a physician? And it turned out that you know, consulting the ching showed her her calling was deep enough to take the plunge, and she did. And I'm assuming that it worked out very well for her. That's
0: clearly a very different way of our responding to to uh, sort of a philosophical input, if you if you will, right? There, there's really it, uh, you just described it as. Um, uh, reading a text and, and something jumps out at you but in fact it's already inside you as opposed to say the, the, the example, the first example you gave where there's a very rational sort of theory about how to conduct one's life coming from Aristotle. Do you, do you um, to what extent do you think those two approaches uh, should or could be both in fact called philosophy because
1: they, they look very different from the outside? Well, there should be. I mean, let it, let it, how many flowers is it? A hundred, a thousand? Let them all bloom. Philosophically, okay. philosophically, <laughs> we we want to have variety. Do we not? We're supposed to be celebrating diversity in the universities. Too often, this means some politically correct formula for you know rainbow coalition. I mean, but what's important is the contents of our characters. And people can be motivated to make excellent contributions and lead contributive lives and be fulfilled as Aristotelians, as Platonists, as Taoists. Why not? Why not? Temperaments are different. An orchestra needs a lot of different voices, you know, to give us beautiful music. Speaking so, so of different voices,
0: um, I'm curious if you have an example off the top of your head uh, when you used, on the other hand, a third way of doing philosophy, if you will, which is sort of closer to the continental philosophical tradition. As opposed to, say, you know, a stand a classical Aristotelian or Greek philosophy or something like well, that. Well,
1: I personally am not so in, in, enmeshed in the continental. I'm okay. going to disappoint you. You know, I'm I'm trained as a British empiricist.
0: You're okay with me because and I've got it. the same time <laughs> <laughs> kind of actually, training. My I
2: feel like the continental philosophy would would work really well as a Rorschach test because it's so incomprehensible that you can really look into it and just sort of. Take well, that's why I brought it up. That it's, that it's it.
0: actually closer, if you will, to that sort of. Well, let's to, be very clear. Example. Let's
1: be very clear. I'm speaking now. This is the movement is much bigger mm-hmm. than me. I'm just one pioneer sure. but there are some brilliant practitioners in the world some of them are european some of them have advanced this thing really greatly and many, many of them are heideggerians i mean there's a german school of dasein analyse i mean they're using <laughs> heidegger as basically, you know, a, a, a an anvil on which to on which to pound people into some kind of philosophical sensibility wow. who need it, and they mm-hmm. do a very good job of it. There are, of course, m- much more famously existential philosophers right. who can help us very greatly. I mean, that's more or less the continental tradition. This is the first use of Heidegger that I actually heard. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we can mine. Listen, the challenge is to find something useful. You know, in any philosophical text or tradition all of them can be mined for nuggets of practical wisdom right in
0: some cases the challenge
1: is a little harder than others absolutely
2: (laughs) so i'm curious how you choose the branch of philosophy or the philosopher that you end up using to help someone because it's i mean there's so many different kinds of contradictory like mutually contradictory philosophical viewpoints so for example with the the lawyer that you were telling us about earlier you quoted Aristotle talking about a golden mean, but you could also have quoted the Stoics talking about how you should have as few worldly desires and possessions as possible. Or you could have, uh, instead of advising him to give to charity, you could have quoted Nietzsche, who wasn't really all that big on helping out the weak and less fortunate. And so do you just sort of take your own personal opinion about what the person should do and then look for philosophy that that says that, or how not. do you choose? I hope
1: not. I mean, the way you've you just cast it would would put us in a very a very contentious light. I think I would prefer to say it this way. Now, let me reframe what you've just proposed, okay. Julia. I think that uh, there's something you know very platonic at work here. Actually, if we think about the Theaetetus and we think about Plato's idea that. People are pregnant with wisdom, and the philosopher functions as a kind of midwife to induce the birth mm-hmm. of the inner wisdom of the client, yes? Or Not patient in our case, but client. Vivid, th- vivid this is image. No, but this is, the, this is more than a metaphor. I think this is the vehicle uh, in which a lot of philosophical counseling t- takes place. It's really a kind of philosoph- uh, Socratic midwifery. And in fact, there's a specialty in that. Pierre Grimes on the West Coast wrote a beautiful book about it. It's called Philosophical Midwifery or Socratic Midwifery. And there is a technique, and I'll give you a case which uses it if you like. Please. But it, for those of you who are, if you're a little rusty on the Thetitis, the essence of it is… Some, some of my <laughs> listeners might. Uh, but, but some, some <laughs> Not of Not me, of course. No, no, you know, no. Other pres- people pres- some company <laughs> accepted, but but some, uh, but there is this beautiful idea that Plato advances, and we don't know empirically, you know, whether whether it's true or not. Plato's ontology is just as much up for grabs as the as the Drake equation. We don't know yet. I hope it's true. Personally, that's a
0: reference to the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence in another yeah. episode. Yes, but <laughs>
1: but the thing is that uh, Plato is asserting, you know, that people carry around with them false self conceptions, all of us. And especially when we're young and vulnerable, you know, we're very susceptible to having other people's ideas impressed upon us. I but don't know
2: see, why you looked at me when you said young and vulnerable. <laughs> I'm just looking
1: around the room. Well, you know, a few people here. That's right. You know, he's, so he's got only a couple of choices. So. Just, you know, don't take it personal. You no, know, no. It's not, not, nothing personal here. Just my archery sometimes is not bad. But okay, so I'll look at Massimo for a while. And I say this. And, and these these ideas can be foisted on us by our parents or by our peers or, you know, by some random source. And sometimes we internalize them and we, and we start to believe that they are really true of us and that they are our friends, as Plato would say there. These ideas are our friends, but they are really our enemies because they are they're imposing limitations on us. They are false self-conceptions. They're called pathologos. And the, the goal of the philosopher through dialogue is to help the person reveal to themselves what is true of them and what is not true of them, and to Mm -hmm. dispossess themselves of those ideas which are actually limiting their progress and their fulfillments in life or preventing their happiness in life. So this is a kind of project that works very often. And what I'm trying to say is if Plato is right, then many people, if not most people, are carrying around inside them a dormant philosopher. And our job is, yeah, to awaken that philosopher. You know, our clients empirically, we find they reinvent Thoughtful people will do this without any assistance. They'll reinvent significant fragments of a given philosophical school system or thinker. And when they come to a philosopher, they can get this contextualized. And so they can walk away with what amounts to the rudiments of a philosophical identity. They can awaken that dormant inner philosopher, and that one can help to guide them to you know, more desirable ends in life. So and that's
0: a, our work. There's another way also to look at, um, at, at the problem that Julia was hinting at, at which is, you know, if you, if you have an infinite number of choices, or essentially infinite number of choices of philosophies to pick, and then you just uh, you know try to match whatever philosopher happens to work with with, with whatever client, you cl- clearly uh, the whole exercise becomes an, you know, an exercise in, in arbitrariness. But we have talked about this um, uh, in a, in a different context in the past on on the podcast, which is. Uh, One of the major differences between, say, philosophy and obviously science is the way in which philosophy does make progress. I've argued on on the podcast that philosophy does make progress, but in a very different way. Obviously, philosophers don't do, you know, they're not in business of of empirical discoveries, so so you cannot make the the parallel directly with science. But what they can do is, you know, it is true that there are several different philosophical ways of looking at a particular problem. Mm-hmm. Julia uh, pointed out earlier, you know, there's one way, way would be the Aristotelian way, the other one would be the Stoic way. But what philosophers are in, at least in part in the business of doing, I think, is to eliminate the many, many, many more ways of looking at things that are clearly wrong, that don't work, they're incoherent, they are, et etc. Et they have a bunch of problems. Mm-hmm. So the fact that you have more than one possible way of looking at a problem, more than one way to solve a particular situation... Doesn't bother me as as much because it doesn't hint to me hint to me at, a, at arbitrariness because I see that as a a small number of, of peaks emerging from these other so from these underlying sea of stuff that we have actually eliminated and and that again I think it's one coherent way in which you can say that philosophers make progress
1: and. And that's what, a very you, important notion. So, let me say, in other words, we're deochemizing the, the, the process, mm-hmm. okay, by eliminating needless you know, possibilities that may occur to the client. But let me emphasize that we're not imposing, you know, I'm not imposing my views on the client at all. And, in fact, au contraire, what I'm trying to do is help the client conduct an exploration of his or her mindscape. That's what we are. We're not We're not taking them on a guided tour of our view of philosophy. We are guides accompanying them on their inner journey, helping them to recognize certain salient features of what they believe, and if necessary, helping them to make constructive adjustments to what they believe.
0: Now, in some sense, that is not that different from standard talk therapy right i mean a, a talk that i want i want your take obviously about, about that relationship between uh, between the two but for instance the reason i'm proposing this is this because very recently i ran into a couple of articles that pointed out that um of the many 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 different uh schools of uh, psychotherapy talk therapy that are available today Empirically speaking, there is only a very small subset that actually makes any difference, and then tends to be to fall into the category of behavioral uh, modification therapy. I would say cognitive, please. Yeah, cognitive, First, not <laughs> that's, behavioral. That's right. Don't, don't, right. don't, don't. Right. Let's right. not go
1: there. Now, cognitive the author, behavioral, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBTs, are being backed by governments now because right. of their uh, demonstrable efficacy. Right. that is true.
0: And one of these authors, I uh, at the moment I I um, forgot his name, but if I find the article, we'll put it on a, a link on the on the website. Uh, was actually drawing a direct but more or less direct link with
1: Aristotle. Well, excuse me, right? Massimo. Massimo, this is also not news. Let, let, let's let's you know put things in a historical perspective, okay? Absolutely. So most of the cognitive therapists do have very good FxC rates compared to others, and there are three or four hundred schools, you know, of, of of psychology, you know, that that are doing counseling, and, and there are many schools of philosophy too. It's a comparable matter. But why are the cognitive uh, people so successful empirically? One reason I'd like to suggest is that most of them are directly trading on philosophical roots. Most famously, Albert Ellis and his RET, right. Stoicism. It was a very sort of quick and dirty version of Stoicism, but extremely Did you say powerful. RET? R-E-T, Rational Emotive on? Therapy. Albert right. Ellis was an icon in New York. Are yeah. oh, you too young? That's the thing.
2: No, no, I <laughs> no, I just you're wanted to young. make sure our e, listeners... E, e, the
1: old timers out there will know who he is. And Rational emotive, <laughs> Rational emotive Therapy, and now R-E-M-B-T, Rational Emotive Behavioral, you know, they introduced that component uh, for certain problems, it's very effective. But, but R-E-T, uh, you know, that, that, and Ellis was a psychologist, and he was doing a very, you know, strong form of kind of a shock you know, kind of shock psychotherapy, but it was, it was grounded in stoicism. And similarly, you could look at other, so many other models, you know, the autonomy, the Rogerian thing with the autonomy of the patient and the, you know, this is Kantian. This is, this is, this is basically a Kantian position regarding the individual as being an autonomous rational being and so forth. So, you know, the second version of the categorical imperative. So basically what you see with the cognitive people is that they have very strong philosophical roots and I would argue that this is partly why they're successful. Uh-huh.
2: I actually uh, used as my one of my picks in a recent episode a sort of popular guide to cognitive behavioral therapy called Feeling Good. And and the reason that I thought it was worth highlighting on this program was that there a lot of the cognitive approaches in cognitive behavioral therapy involve pointing out irrationalities in people's thinking that are leading them to right. feel bad or leading them to behave irrationally in ways that are counterproductive and so on. Right. So I actually... I thought it was really a good way of doing what you were describing, Massimo, of right. like eliminating the incoherent or the, the false. The stuff that doesn't make sense. totally exactly. so brilliant, yeah. but
1: we call this critical thinking. Excuse me. We, call, we teach right. this. It's called, <laughs> it's called critical thinking. And also, you mentioned the Stoics, Julia, and you're right. But this is what the Stoics were so brilliant at doing. They had already figured out that pure reason does not hold sway over our passions. Our emotions are too strong most of the time. Or at least when strong emotions mm-hmm. surface, reason is temporarily powerless, unfortunately. So how do you, how do you finesse this? The Stoics were brilliant and said, look, we cannot win this war of reason versus passion, as Hume would later understand, and Hobbes would later understand, but they said, what we can do is change our judgments with reason. And our emotional response to circumstances arises from judgments we're making mm-hmm. about the circumstances Judgments are amenable to modification through reason. And if we modify our judgments, we modify our feelings. So the stoic root is exactly this. And it's
0: really powerful. And that really is, in fact, the basic idea about cognitive behavioral therapy. Now, what about the relationship between your approaches and, you know, sort of the general version of uh, of talk
1: therapy, psychotherapy? Uh, it, it, I, I got the impression there's some tension there. Well, you got an impression from a 10-year-old media, you know, when we first surfaced in this city was around 97, we started to get some serious press in, in New York and then it went around the world and so forth. But the media here, do I have to tell you this? That they, they, they make a big living on controversy? Yeah, I noticed. Uh, is this news? Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> basically they will turn anything into controversy, and they were able to elicit some very controversial and, 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 and possibly advise sound bites when they got a former president of the American Psychiatric Association to say, well, philosophers who are talking about, you know, helping people resolve moral dilemmas or practicing medicine without a license, give me a break. Ooh. Okay. That that was probably not what he said. They may have taken him out of context or they may have given him a, a very slanted sort of picture on which to commentate. So I think that the media did us a big favor in essence by bringing us to public attention but in the process the transaction cost of that or one transaction cost was really to skew Public opinion, and especially in the U.S. and Let's talk about this before the show's over. This nation is the most psychologized in the world. And oh I, yeah, I do this. I render <laughs> philosophical services all over Europe, South America, you know, the, the, the Asia. You name it. I have never seen a country in my life. From cradle to grave, everything that goes wrong in life immediately becomes, by default, some kind of psychological problem. Or then, psychiatric.
0: Well, no. or worse, psychiatric. So right.
1: mm-hmm. And in the 80s, 1 in 10 Americans was diagnosed as mentally ill, quote-unquote mentally ill. Why are they still using this mental? So what happened to... Okay, and then <laughs> it, go, it went from, you know, to 1 in 5, and now it's 1 in 2. Because they've been colonized by big pharma, let's be very clear, the insurance companies and the, and the pharmaceutical industries are running the show, and it's in their interest to make everybody diagnosable, and prescribable and they don't really care about you know your health they care about your drug consumption if you look at late night TV and the, and the, and the catalog of side effects that are being recited to people oh yeah th- this drug is great for your, if you're depressed but it may, the side effect possibly may, may, may make you more depressed you know for a time and if you wake up dead call your physician you know your kidneys shut down you know <laughs> stop taking this you, you hear this stuff right? Absolutely, it's
0: unbelievable as, okay? a, as a European myself actually when I came to the United States I've been in this country now for a little more than 20 years but when I Came initially, especially the first few years, that was exactly the sort of thing that I was paying particular attention to. And I said, holy cow, this is the sort of stuff that I never
1: actually heard in Europe. And most Americans are never exposed to philosophy. Most Europeans are exposed to philosophy in high school. That is true. That's and right. And so they're accustomed to looking at things. They understand that this is an acceptable way and sometimes a preferable way of interpreting what's going on. And Asians, of course, are steeped in virtue ethics, thanks to the Confucian tradition, the Taoist right. tradition, so and the Buddhist tradition. So they're very comfortable with philosophy, too. But Americans seem to think most of them are just untutored. And they, they seem to think, you know, in, in the Garden of Eden, there was Adam, Eve, a, Adam, Eve a serpent, and a psychologist. <laughs>
2: Uh, Getting back quickly to cognitive behavioral therapy, we were mentioning how, or you were talking about how it's, like, the one really solidly empirically tested uh, and and empirically supported uh, form of therapy. Do you have any kind of similar testing process for philosophical counseling? Like, do you ever measure sort of success rate or anything?
1: Well, uh, I can tell you that we're not big enough yet, okay, well, as a How field. big are you? Can you how give us some demographics? How big are we? we have, yeah, in, around the world now, I would guess there are about 1,000 or so practitioners. Mm-hmm. And in the U.S., this has grown a lot in the last decade. In the U.S., the APPA has certified about 300 practitioners, and I'm guessing there are another 300 or so who are practicing, you know, on their own, which is fine. There's no legislation for or against this. So uh, there are a lot of independents in practice. The, you know, the movement mm-hmm. is growing, but we have nothing like a sufficient body of statistics in order to demonstrate you know, right. causal efficacy. Mm-hmm. Although that's growing, we recently completed a three-year project in Sweden with the Spinalis Foundation and Rehab Station, a state-of-the-art medical facility, clinical medicine, whose populations are newly spinal-injured patients mm-hmm. and who are suddenly paralyzed for life and newly diagnosed MS patients, mostly women. It's a genetic thing. It shows up in its early 20s. Oh. So these people whom they're treating, these patients, they can stabilize them medically, they can do, they have wonderful ways, but they, doctors there, a couple of very brilliant Swedish doctors, in my view anyway, recognized These people needed something else that they weren't offering they they could do everything for their bodies they needed to do something more for their minds and they were not mentally ill okay they didn't have post-traumatic stress disorder yes something bad happened to them and now they have to reinvent themselves and the best way for them to do that in many cases is with a philosopher so they've integrated philosophical counseling into their menu of services and this is really the tip of the iceberg of what we're capable of doing in korea the ministry of defense has Actually, contracted and funded the newly, r- relatively newly founded Korean National Association for Philosophical Practice really? to deliver services. They're doing philosophical counseling with frontline troops. Really? Which in Korea is a very, if you've been to Seoul, it is the front line, you know. Well, so, the, the,
0: the American military, actually interesting, recently I read, does uh, do some philosophical training uh, for their soldiers in terms of virtue ethics.
1: Well, they do virtue ethics right. because that would right. be a very typical Western thing to be doing. Exactly. They also ought to be doing a little bit of Sun Tzu, too. I think <laughs> the art of war would help them. But the real telling statistic, if you love, since you like statistics, the U.S. Army recently uh, completed a survey that showed alarmingly 75% of our young men are unfit. It's 75% unfit because of physical and or psychological problems. So this whole That's mental a health industry, high industry percentage. of junk food, this industry of paint-by-number diagnosis and mass drugging of children and so forth, is it making people better or is it making people worse?
0: Well, the thing about statistics, <laughs> uh, you know, again, going, going back to, to uh, standards uh, psychotherapy, when I mentioned earlier on uh, that um, research now, com- pretty convincingly, I think, shows that the cognitive behavioral therapy is pretty much the only one that works, or that I actually demonstrated, statistically demonstrated effects. The thing that really caught my attention is that um, after one of these studies was published, uh, the authors went back to a lot of the practitioners and said, okay, so here's the results. Um, clearly what you're doing is not working. Would you consider switching? to you know some kind of cognitive behavior therapy and the overwhelming majority of the responses that they got is well no i i know it works it's my experience and i don't really care what the statistics actually <laughs> say which is not exactly the most sort of scientific yeah. and, but, and but, rational but, but response. let me
1: bring this let me try to f- focus this really on the present now and this whole issue that we began with controversy and so forth i think firstly uh there's a tremendous potential for engagement with psychology, and I don't want to get into professional turf wars with them. Right. They're too big. They're too powerful, anyway. But there's a tremendously interesting question here that arises, and it's really a Popperian demarcation problem. Where does philosophy begin? Where does psychology begin? You know, ph- historically, psychology is the child of philosophy. If you if you were studying, you know, Plato, if you were if you were a philosopher in, in the ancient world, looking at the human being and trying to understand the human being, you were inevitably doing some kind of psychology as well, yes, yeah, as right. philosophy. Up well, until, like recent, right? up until philosophy. more recently than people know, William James held William the chair James, right. of philosophy and and psychology at Harvard in, uh, up to 1905. And in England, it went on longer. Cyril Jode, a much neglected philosopher, C.E.M. Jode, held the chair of philosophy and psychology at the University of London until the 1940s when it was abolished. And government started to pump billions and billions of dollars into psychology as a science, you know. But interestingly enough, when the people started counseling psychologically, the research psychologists looked at them and said, this isn't psychology. And now the counselors outnumber the researchers, you know, 10 to 1, (laughs) and it's a pretty accepted field. It's still very new. Relatively speaking, philosophy is ancient. We're also not trying to be scientific. We're not competing in this way. We are, I would prefer to say, an art form, and what we do is hermeneutic, it's maiotic. Uh, We're not trying to to, do anything that's rigorously scientific, but it is an art that is powerful. We also have a very natural alliance with medicine, and I've come now to befriend and to have been befriended by some leading psychiatrists, who at the beginning mounted very good skeptical challenges. Listen, Massimo, you're all over the map with science and philosophy. You know that any in any innovation has to be tested. There's a, yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's there's an allegory to synthetic to, to natural selection. It's it's not Darwinian, but it's a cultural product. It's, a cultural it's, it's synthetic. Right. I call it synthetic selection, as opposed to natural selection. So a way we have of of testing new ideas. We don't want to just admit anything into the mainstream culture. It could be terrible. So we have to test so anything new that comes along has to be tested and I think it's a good thing psychiatrists mounted excellent criticisms Uh, we were able to answer them and through dialogue develop a mutual understanding and now we're working with them and some psychiatrists you know extraordinarily philosophical beings people like Irvin Yalom people like Ron Pies at Tufts he wrote a book called everything has two handles that's straight out of Epictetus. He doesn't just <laughs> diagnose and drug. He doesn't just do psychotherapy. He's a very philosophical guy, Ron Pies, and he will work with Stoicism and with Buddhism when it's appropriate with his own psychiatric patients. Excuse me, he's practicing philosophy when he's Again, doing that. Again, the, the
0: relationship between the two has, has been controversial um, for the last you know, century or so. Uh, for instance, very recently, as you, you, you were mentioning earlier, uh, William James, but, but of course uh, Freud comes to mind, and in this particular sense... Uh, just very recently, a few days ago, uh, Gordon Marino uh, published this article in the New York Times uh, entitled Freud as Philosopher, where he pointed out that Freud was actually scornful of philosophy. And there, there are some quotes in the article about uh, uh, Freud's sort of, uh, um, disregarding philosophy as a, as a serious exercise useful to human beings. But then, in fact... Freud himself wrote uh, Civilization and Its, its Discontents, which is an incredibly philosophical um, uh, take on things. Now, one may or may not agree on his particular take on it, but it certainly is a philosophical, is a philosophical book. Um, so the relationship between the two, between the sort of psychology and philosophy, has been, in fact, uh, fairly complex, shall we say, over over the last 100 Definitely.
1: years. Definitely, and, and, and well worth exploring in greater depth. So yeah. just let me give you a, a, a further uh, piece of news about this that civilization and its discontent. Freud, yes, it is a philosophical work, and it's based squarely on something that Freud never read, namely Hobbes' Leviathan. If Freud had troubled, Hobbes is the most consistent materialist you know, in the, right. in the last 500 years, and Freud never read him. And in the Leviathan, and I can give you chapter and verse for your website later, Hobbes anticipates three, three things that were very critical to the development of psychoanalysis. First, Hobbes talks about word association and how one thought will, will lead to another. You know through through this this process that Freud would later make great hay with, Hobbes also talks about the significance of dreams, the significance mm-hmm. of dreams, and how importantly meaningful they are, but difficult you know to understand. And Hobbes also talks about madness, and he says there are so many forms of madness out there that he said he who would you know want to catalog them, he said we should we would have to employ a legion. Basically, so he anticipates the DSM. Which we do. He anticipates (laughs) the Hobbes was a great visionary, okay, and recognized, you know, justly as the founder of two two fields, you know, modern political science, but also something called empirical psychology, of which Freud was the greatest modern exponent.
2: I'm curious about your process of certification because, as you were saying, you you don't want to. you don't want to put something out in the public without being confident that it's, you know, tested enough, verified enough that you are uh, are comfortable um, putting it out there. So how do you actually decide who to certify? Uh, what what does the training process involve?
1: Okay, great. Um, let me preface uh, my answer by saying that the certification has proved, you know, very, very good uh, – for a couple of reasons. Most of our clients are self selecting at this point. In other words, there are people in the general public who hear about this or read, you know, read about it and say, hey, I want to try this or this is what I've been looking for. And a lot of people are chary of seeing psychotherapists or psychiatrists, not because uh, they can't be benefited, but because there's still a stigma attached to it, especially if you're diagnosed and it goes on your record, you know. Now, I believe there are mental illnesses and people who have them should be treated. So we have a scope mm-hmm. of practice. And the, the certification program teaches people, not philosophy, we're accepting, you know, philosophers, they have minimum of an MA. Mm-hmm. Um, we also do now a new thing called certified affiliates, where we accept psychologists, social workers, psychiatrists, lawyers, mm-hmm. people who are already uh, helpers, who are licensed by states and want to acquire some, uh, you know, familiarity with, with philosophical techniques mm-hmm. or indeed expertise with them. So we admit both populations and we mix them now to great effect because the philosophers know way too much philosophy and not enough about how to work with people. You know, the ones who are analytically trained, they're brilliant. But they have no idea how to work with people a lot, but they want to. They have this vocation, some of them. And and, and the theoretical philosophy, which you know, which dominates in the academy, has simply uh, forbade applications. You know, there are many who are still even looking at scans at applied ethics, which is a huge growth industry. Yeah. So what we do is we're not purporting to to, to, to do something like fifteen hundred hours of supervision, you know, and the things that psychologists need to be licensed yeah. nowadays. What we're doing is we're giving philosophers tools, the necessary tools with which they can build a practice when they go back to their hometown or back to the university and practice and this works it's worked all over the world so they're coming to us because they already want to do this People read a book like Plato, not Prozac. It's in 30 languages, for heaven's sake. It's become really surprisingly a bestseller in many, many countries, most recently Mm -hmm. Romania. I mean, they're a little behind, but now they're there. And wherever they're getting Prozac, they could be getting (laughs) Plato, right? So what happens is typically this. Citizens read this. Readers read this. They say, wait a second. I want to talk to a philosopher. And philosophers read this and say, wait a minute. I want to be a counselor. So then they self-identify and on the patient side or the client side about 19 of 20 95% of the people who come to me are acceptable their problem fits in the scope of practice that you know we've crafted for ourselves as a profession those who don't fit the scope of practice they're not rational they're not functional what they're presenting with is not a philosophical issue we refer them for appropriate help we give them you know send them to a doctor send them to a psychologist send them to a psychiatrist send them to a priest Send them to a Zen Roshi, for that matter. But if they have a genuinely philosophical problem, we work with them. The three-day program gives philosophers the tools to build a practice for themselves. And that's so what they're doing. Part
0: of, part of the idea is, to, for, for instance, to recognize when somebody fits the profile or doesn't. When, when you should be, in fact, referring to somebody to, say, a psychiatrist or... or uh, or a facility for uh, mental problems. It's
1: absolutely critical. Right. We, we, because we're not trained to diagnose, we're not trying to be trained to diagnose, but we can still ask, of course, about the ontological status of some of the illnesses in the DSM. I mean, if we put on our philosophy of science hats, yes. you know, we can ask some very interesting and critical questions about the DSM, what is reified, what isn't. But on the other side of the ledger, we, we have to practice as... Credible professionals and our code of ethics says first do no harm, so we must, when in doubt, refer out. And as I'm saying empirically, it's about 5% of my cases are not appropriate, so I do refer them. And you know what? This engenders better relations with the other professions. I get referrals from doctors. I get referrals from psychiatrists, too, because they also recognize it's quid pro quo. They now, being more aware of what we're doing, say, wait a second, maybe this is a philosophical problem. I'll refer you to a philosophical counselor.
2: I'm curious. Do you ever get any patients coming in uh, whose malaise stems from religious questioning, and they want to come to a philosopher to, to get me? philosophical wisdom kidding? about the existence of God All or about time. heaven or hell? All so, the time. So how do you deal with cases like this that? Is,
1: these are some of the most interesting cases. I've had rabbis, I've had priests, I've had uh, you know people uh, uh, with with strongly uh, religious orientations who have ethical questions or, you know, questions within the, their canon, uh, which they want to have looked at from an outside, more objective perspective in order to enrich their own ways of inquiry and understanding. It's really fascinating working with these people. Well, what, totally about,
2: what about questions about the existence of God? Or about- well, let, me, let, me, let me answer
1: this in, a, in, a, in an elliptical way, okay? You know what we, what we could have sent in to, you know, if you want to get involved with uh, with, let us say, religious extremists to try to, to temper them a little bit? there was this circulated on the internet a few years ago and let let me just tell you what it is. And you know, we could have instead of sending in the Marines or sending in, you know, whoever we send in to Afghanistan, we could have parachuted in a crack brigade of French existentialists (laughs) with black berets, you know, cheap cigarettes, you know, some Golwa cigarettes and some house wine. And they could have set up shop in the local cafe, right? And said, you know, so Ahmed, maybe what if Allah doesn't exist? Okay? Now of course they're gonna kill him. I mean the first few. But then eventually they're going to plant the seed of doubt, right? And someone's going, wait a minute. So then if Allah doesn't exist, ah, then our universe is different and we have to reconfigure our belief system. So this kind of thing, I mean, this is partly, you know, funny and tongue-in-cheek, but there's a very serious underside to it. What philosophers are really good at, I've discovered, most of us, are subverting people's beliefs. Now, this could be for better or for worse. But students time and again come into our classroom with a very rigid, you know, an fixe, a rigid, and we're able to loosen up. You know their cognitive apparatus a little bit and get them to widen broaden their perspectives. Yes, Yes? that
0: is that's the major um, idea I would think behind any class in critical thinking. I mean, I I teach critical thinking in Lehman uh, almost every semester, and that's the idea. You don't come into the class, you know, imposing uh, your your views obviously on people, although. I tell my students that I will not pretend that I don't have views about all sorts of things for the simple reason that, of course, most of my views on pretty much everything uh, are available on the blog and they can they can easily look it up. So they know exactly what I think about God. They they know what my political opinions are. They know everything that I think about, all sorts of um, issues that we discuss in class. But they also know that my job there, or at least I try to make them aware of the fact that my job there is simply to bring up a variety of points of view and to question why people hold to to one point of view or another, and and then they have to make up their mind. That's the whole idea about critical thinking. You don't impose your thinking. You, as you were saying, loosen up people's beliefs. shake them up a little bit.
1: And this is a good thing because it broadens the scope of inquiry. It's back to the Socratic way. So further, Julia, to this, and in brief. So here are some examples of what's happened from our certification program. We've had a couple of chairs of departments who've gone back and instituted... You know, IRB-approved research protocols, institutional review board protocols, and philosophical counseling. Kathy Russell and Andrew Fitzgibbon did this at SUNY Cortland. And they, they ran, you know, a research program in philosophical counseling sanctioned by the university. Kate Mehuron, professor and chair of her department at Eastern Michigan University, she did the same thing. I pioneered this with a research protocol at City College. Some of our most interesting clients have come in pro bono to these protocols. And this is the kind of work that we've been doing. And you see we're growing this in the American way from the inside out. The, the certification programs is a really stopgap. For philosophers already, you know, credentialed in philosophy, we are in the process now, if I may say, of working through implementation of a proposed MA in applied philosophy at City College, and that would actually graduate people who could call themselves philosophical practitioners oh, among exciting. other streams. Very exciting.
2: So uh, we're going to wrap up this section of the podcast. We're going to put a link to Lou's books, um, so you can check out Plato, not Prozac, uh, and his other books on our website. Um, but as we move on to the rationally speaking picks, we'll see what other books, movies or websites we want to recommend to our listeners.
0: Welcome back. Every episode we pick a suggestion for our listeners that has tickled our rational fancy. This time, we ask our guest, Lou Marinoff, for his suggestion. Lou?
1: Well, there's a wealth of books out there on philosophical practice, mostly by very serious practitioners, but I'm going to give you something new and different that just landed on my desk a couple of weeks ago. It's a novel. It's called The Philosophical Practitioner. It's by, <laughs> what a coincidence. A, what a coincidence. It's, it's by, and you know I'm, this is no, he's not paying me to say this. It's, uh, I just loved it. It's by a guy named Larry Abrams, who's a former New Yorker, now living, I think, in Texas. And uh, I don't know the publisher because I'm a scholar off duty tonight to do your show somewhat. We'll but find out. Book, you'll find it. And the the, the really interesting thing, two two things if I may say. First of all, Larry uh, attended quite regularly a, a philosopher's forum that I ran for seven years in Chelsea at Barnes and Noble. If I'm allowed to say that. I mean, it was it was sure. you know an informal group, and I ran it you know quite successfully for a number of years. And we had all kinds of wide-ranging and interesting public discussions. It was yep. you know what philosophers are supposed to do: get back into the agora. Uh, Absolutely. No, I, I have
0: a similar experience. Uh,
1: you know, once a month have these dinners, philosophy mm-hmm. dinners. Uh, in, and you know America. how much fun and, 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 and how interesting they are for people, too, yeah. to get philosophy out of the ivory Tower a little bit. So Larry was there, and he, he obviously imbibed a great deal of what was going on, more than I ever would have suspected. Mm. And suddenly he sends me this incredible novel about a philosopher who's, you know, he's a counselor and he's practicing in Manhattan. And he's such an ethical guy. I'm not going to ruin the plot for you, but he makes, he puts his own life at risk at a certain point, in order not to violate our code of ethics. So, Larry, kudos for, for, for putting us into <laughs> such great light. I hope we all would measure up, you know. But I must say, it's a, it's a very interesting read. It, he does have insight into the kinds of clients we attract right. and how we work. He's done some really good homework on this. And uh, it's, it's a very readable novel. So that would be my pick. And also, I must say, we've really now arrived. If we're being fictionalized, I'd say... That's, That's right. You know,
0: you, you know, you arrived if there is a book, a fictional book, about exactly a right.
1: fiction for a movie, or then, then we know we've arrived in this culture. <laughs> so, the philosophical practitioner by Larry Abrams is my pick.
2: Yeah. Once you have the uh, the network TV sitcom starring, or you know, crime drama starring the uh, philosophical it's even better. practitioner, then you've really, really arrived. Well, thank you so much, Lou. It was, it was a pleasure having you on our show tonight. Uh, this concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense.
0: The Rationally Speaking Podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollack and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission.
1: Thank you for listening.